Well, good morning. I am excited and probably a little nervous. Um, I wasn't at the planning meeting and when we assigned passages. And I was, so I was like, okay, I'll do Hebrews 6, whatever. And then as I, I was like, oh, I think I missed an important meeting in which people picked what they wanted to talk on. And I got um, a topic that maybe people weren't as excited to talk about. And then I start reading the commentaries and said, you know, this is the most controversial, in-depth, difficult passage. And I said, why, Lord? Like, why am I the one who gets to come and teach this? And I still don't know. But <laughs> I feel my prayer is that just um, that we would have grace as we just go through a more difficult passage. And um, just remind, like, the reason why we named our study Grounded is because we don't want to think that we're being swayed kind of like by our emotions they can change they can change tomorrow they can change the next day and they're not something that we can ground ourselves to and we're going to hear talk today about an anchor that holds us it holds us fast and the same way we want to use not only our emotions when we come to the Lord but we want to use our minds and to think and we might not think the same way because when I read the commentaries there's many different ways people think on this but we still need to be grounded and thoughtful about what we're thinking so that that is what's going into our emotions as opposed to letting our emotions drive our thinking. So that all said, um, you guys talked about what is your favorite piece of advice? And I was thinking about um, specifically common sense advice. And we have three children, three girls, and... As we were parenting and often coming late to things, we still show up late to things. We try our best. Um, <laughs> however, we, um, thank you Westminster for always making me late. Um, we try, we try so hard. But um, one thing we've done to help improve ourselves on getting on time was we realized we were giving ourselves about 20 seconds from getting from our house to our car to leaving the driveway. That's all I had built into our schedule. Like, of course, like when we were married and just two of us, we could do it. Like that wasn't a big problem. But loading a car or a minivan with three children takes significantly more time than the 20 seconds I was allotting us. It actually takes more than probably five minutes. And so we instituted the load time rule because it was causing conflict with myself and my husband as to who had expectations about who was doing what and how we were getting everybody to where we needed to go, specifically to church, because it's probably the only time we both are doing something for the same purpose. I'm usually just taking care of the kids, hence why we're late for school. But when we're working together to get to church, it was this problem. And so we realized that if we could get on the same page, because we'd say, what time are we leaving for church? And he'd say, oh, 8.30. Okay, well, what does 8.30 meant to me was like we were driving away. To him, it meant like we were like, be, he was ready in the house, but he was just going to walk to the car, and I was going to haul three kids and diaper bags and strollers and extra shoes, and then fixing the socks that the scene was bothering the person. Like, there's so many problems that happen in that seven minutes, and so we established this load time to help us get on the same page, but it took us a long time to do it, and probably because we're not, there's no one in our family and the Enneagram. So like, we have a harder time sometimes coming to these efficient systems that other people can do. But this piece of advice or this thought process for us changed our life because it got us on the same page. We knew what was expected of us and we were aiming for the same goal. Well, here we are, we're going for the same thing. And then the last thing is we could be held accountable to each other 
which in marriage is so helpful for us to know like this was expected and since we both are on the same page, I can actually hold you accountable to what we have said we were gonna do as a family. And so as we go into chapter six of Hebrews, there's some advice that's gonna be given and it's complicated and sometimes it's hard to hear and it's actually sad too. But it's said almost like in a sermon. Like I was reading, it's like, Hebrews isn't really a letter. It's more of a sermon. And if you listen to it on audio, it actually sounds like someone's preaching it as opposed to someone's writing it. And so this common sense that's going to show up like, of course, of course, that's what you would do. Like, of course, if there was an anchor, you would hold on to it. Of course. But it's a divine common sense. And I think it's in a life-changing way, a reminder, like, what are we grounding ourselves to? What is Jesus better than? So in your homework, you were asked, what is the better we're going to review in this passage? Does anyone have, I can't remember if we actually told you the answers to these somewhere, but does anyone know what the better is for this week from the homework? I think it was question, is it one of the first? Mm-hmm. Question Four, three. What is Jesus better than in this chapter? What? Aaron? Mm-mm. We're in chapter six. That was chapter five. No. The high priest, Melchizedek. That is part of this pa- the chunk that we're going to go through. Does anyone else have any better than thoughts on this chapter? Better than our sufferings? God's promises, that is actually what I'm going to talk about. Anything else? Anyone have a thoughtful thought on what would God be, Jesus be better than? Okay, so what we identify it was is better than the promise is what we did. So that's how you're going to see the rest of it is kind of going to unfold. Hopefully it will make sense as you talk about what promise and um, what that looks like. But there's... I would say there's like three other things that I felt like talk about Jesus being better than in this passage. And one is Jesus is better than the organized church or religion. Um, Jesus is the better salvation and he is the better hope. And so next week we're going to talk about the better hope, but there is hope is in this passage. So there's no way to like not talk about it as we go through it. So, um, Hebrews 6 is going to talk about, we're going to head into it. Susan left off the beginning of a warning, and we go straight into a warning. And um, Jen Wilkins was joking and said, like, this really isn't what um, books are written on. Like, no one wants to buy a book on, like, the warnings in Hebrews. And so it's the only way you're going to get through this is if you're reading through the Bible yourself or you're doing a study that's going through the whole Bible. These are passages that get omitted. Like in an Instagram world, these are not being Instagrammed. Like no one is sending this as an encouragement to someone. And so just as a reminder, when we read the whole Bible, we understand the whole character of God, and that actually gives us the confidence, not just holding, pulling out that one verse about our anchor, but we want to understand who God is and how that all goes behind um, what he says about himself. So we're going to read Hebrews 6, 1 through 3. Therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrines of Christ and go on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works of faith towards God 
and of instruction about washings, the laying of hands, the resurrection of the dead, and eternal judgment. And this we will do if God permits. Okay. <laughs> so I will tell you, I read through Hebrews. I was reading this chapter to Peter. I'm like, I have actually no idea what we're talking about. Like, and so I just an encouragement to you guys, like, it doesn't come easy. It's not this natural flow where it's like, oh, yeah, exactly. Let's leave that all behind. Like, it takes some time and depth. And I'm just so excited you guys are committed to being in a study where, like, you're learning about it. You're, we're learning, and we're going to learn together, and that's the best way because then we can, as iron sharpens iron, we can talk to each other and we can understand it. And so it says to leave behind this, what they're doing. And there's a couple different commentaries on what this could be. And I'm going to go with, from what I read and what I don't think it was, is that these are the teachings from the Old Testament. These are the, what they understood, because these are the Jewish believe, or Jewish people who are coming out of Jewish faith. And what they understood about Jesus was what they had been taught, the Messianic promises. And the things of their faith were coming from the Old Testament. And so the writer is calling them to the next stage, to the next step of their faith. Hey, we know you've been following one God. We know that you've been awaiting this Messiah, and we're here to tell you the Messiah is here. So instead of waiting for the Messiah, you need to now follow the Messiah. They have a foundation, and they'll either go forward or go backwards, but they can't continue to lay the same things down and continue to per pursue Christianity or the way um, if they keep doing the same things. In order to become a Christ follower, they need to do something different. And these teachings could be about Christian, um, being a Christian. However, it appears that inclusion of washing specifically is from Levitical law that it does not have to do with baptism. And so, and all of the other um, six things could be within both Old Testament and New Testament teachings. But because of the inclusion of that, it would seem consistent that they would all fall into Old Testament teaching. So the six teachings, the repentance of dead works, is the understanding of repenting from the breaking of the Torah. Two, faith towards God. Um, the Jewish people were uniquely monotheistic, and they were in a world where everyone else had multiple gods. So it is significant that they had one God, and they had faith in, towards that God. But we're now calling them to have faith to Jesus, and that's different. The laying on of hands is during the sacrifices. They would lay hands on the animals before they would go. Um, they do like a scapegoat and a sheep and different things. So it's part of that ceremony of the Old Testament practices. The resurrection of the dead is another Old Testament practice of um, that they would anticipate. And eternal judgment is another Old Testament thing that they had talked about. So those are truths within the Old Testament. And what he's calling them to do is like, you have to do something different. You have to go to something more. And this is hard. He is calling them to something very hard. Because he ends it with, it's only through God's strength. If God permits, you cannot do this on your own. And it's only going to be through God's strength and power that you're going to be able to do it. And when we want to let go of things that are comfortable and convenient and what we think is our life, it's only in God's strength that we can do that. We can't choose to, we can't just will ourselves to do it. We need to be relying on the God to take us through that. So the next chapter, or the next verses are going to be verses 4 to 8. And this is another strong warning. And there's at least three interpretations of this passage that I read through. 
One is the danger of a Christian losing their salvation, but then it rejects this because it says salvation is a work of God and that cannot be reversed. Another one is the understanding that this person has a mere knowledge of faith but has no salvation. And third, hypothetically, if a Christian could lose their salvation, then there is no provision for repentance. Um, I'll read it just so that we're all on the same page. In case you didn't do your homework, you know what we're talking about. Romans 6, 4 to 8. For it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, who have shared in the Holy Spirit, and have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of age to come, and then fallen away to restore them again to repentance, since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding him up to contempt. For the land that was, has drunk the rain has, uh, falls on it and produces a crop useful to those for whose sake it is cultivated, receive a blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless, near to being cursed, and in the end it will be burned. So... It's a tough passage to reconcile. There's definitely the understanding of salvation that if you reject Jesus, that you don't have faith in him, that I think we can be confident of. If someone has chosen not to follow Jesus and has chosen to reject him, they are not a follower of him. The question is, what does this passage mean? And so as I did... um, research, and I would recommend that you do further research. If this is a topic you're concerned with, actually, as I sit down, Marty's like, hey, I heard you're doing the speaking today. Good luck. (laughs) She said it very nicely. She was like, I remember one time this was talked about, and it was really difficult for people to come to the same side and to see it the same way, and I think that's where grace can abound. I know that we don't know. God. There's pieces of God we don't understand. There's pieces of the Bible that we don't know. And when we went through First Peter last year, Jen Wilkins would, obviously, would say, sit in the unknown. Don't, don't require yourself to have the answer, but sit in the unknown and let God meet you there. So there are, I was going to ask Brian. I bet there's a podcast on the, do you think there's a Q&A on this? I, we will send those resources out of some of the Q&A podcasts that relate to this topic, just so you have more resources. If it's something like I need to know, I want to know. My sister does, um, has done radio call-in shows um, for ever, since she was like a freshman in college and she's older than me. And she said, this is a topic that People call in all the time and say, well, what about this passage? What about this passage? And so it just creates this sense of wanting to know, of wanting to understand salvation, wanting to know what can happen. So all that to say, my reading and research has led me to think and to, as I'm going to teach it, it's a description of someone who's actually never had salvation. They had rather a spiritual experience around believers. They heard the word of God preached. They saw the blessing of the community of believers. They saw the work of the Spirit in people's lives. And then after all of this, they said, I don't want it. They said, you know what? This is better. This is better. That's hard to have someone. There's people in our church who don't, who aren't, who don't know Jesus personally, who aren't walking with him. And our prayer is that this passage would compel us to share the gospel and compel us to prayer and to look inwardly like, what is going on in my life, Lord? Let me be confident and assured of my salvation. 
And the other thing is to, this is like so hard, but not to assure someone else of their salvation. Allow someone to wrestle with their doubt and be a friend and be that mom who that child needs to hear. Because it is the peace and assurance that God will give through the Spirit, not your affirmation that your five-year-old prayed a prayer and that they're saved. And so I do with my girls, like they, some of, a couple of them have a salvation story right now. And my prayer is that that was their salvation. But I'm not, but when they talk and I don't see fruit, I'm like, Lord, let, I pray that they have a, this time that I see the Spirit alive in them. And Lord, let, that, let me know that this is sin that we're working through versus like in an unrepentant heart or is this someone who doesn't even know the Lord that I'm praying for them to get the Holy Spirit? Like, I don't know, but I know that God has it in control. And so as we have our children and we raise them in church, one of the questions is, what are the difficulties we have for our, when we raise families in a church who the kid like, especially in evangelical culture, because I feel like we say, oh, we don't have those things. Like, hi, church, like, they, have, they were confirmed and they were baptized and they didn't make those decisions. So now they have to make their own decision. But our kids, they go through Awana. They go to Sunday school. They have similar things in these moments. And what we want to say is, no, you accepted Christ. But they might not have. I was in a small group one time and this mom was just really struggling with her daughter. I think she was 12 at the time. And she was homeschooled and they were doing everything right. And they're like everything they could to like make sure that these children were following the Lord. And I, she came one time to, we were, got together at Panera. I remember sitting there and she started crying. She said, you'll never believe it. My 12-year-old accepted Christ. We're like, what? She's like, she, she's like, I had no idea she wasn't saved. She's like, I remember when she was three, when she said the prayer, she's like, but here she is 12. And she's like, and I'm so thankful the Lord just closed my mouth and did not tell her she was saved because she truly had no peace or a sense that she was a Christian. And she's like, and she did. And her life is different. And I see the spirit living in her today. And what an awesome testimony for me. I had like a two-year-old at the time. To hear this other mom say like, look, it's not our job to affirm and confirm our, ch- our children's salvation, but to be the light for them. To be, we're going to talk about be an imitator. Be, be something where they want what you have. Not that they see this organized church. Like church is our life. Like we go to church, we go to two services, we go to Awana, like all these things that become our culture, but that's not actually our faith. So that is, so yeah, so as you go through that, like there's just so much we can do um, and process through that. My prayer is that we would see the need for salvation and that we would be prayerful women, that those of us who are moms would be modeling what it looks like to follow Jesus and follow hard and that our children would see like, wow, mom has something better. She's not pursuing her phone. She is not pursuing shopping. She is not pursuing um, perfection. She is not pursuing other people and looking good, but she is pursuing Jesus. And I can tell you, she's going to choose Jesus over all these other things. I think at times we get lost on the other things we're holding on to and we're going to cling to them and we hold on too tightly the next illustration is really an illustration of two people and two lands and they're receiving the rain and so the rain was always a blessing it's not here my my kindergarten would say her field trip got postponed to the pumpkin patch today 
because no one wants to haul soggy kindergartners in and out of their minivans to go to the pumpkin patch. So on Friday when it's sunny, we've been rescheduled. But the rain we don't always see is a blessing. A bunch of us were even late this morning because it was raining. Susan's like, why are people late? I'm like, because it's raining and we don't really like it. Like, <laughs> it just, we don't really, and some of us just like are more controlled by our emotions and so we just don't feel like <laughs> coming to Bible study. Like, it's harder to wake up, all those things. And so, as the rain comes, it produces, it's going to produce a crop. When the rain comes, it's going to produce a crop. And what our desire is, that it's a useful crop. It talks about the land that produces thorns and thistles. This is worthless. It's of no use. When something's of no use, it says it will be burned. Jen Wilkins shared an illustration that she had, which I thought, I'm not a gardener. This past, so I've gotten, last year I had to pay someone to like fix all the gardening or like landscaping I hadn't done all year, I didn't know. And so this year I have one set of tools, I don't know what it is, but it clips things, shears, I'm not sure. Susan knew I was so desperate, she was like, here I got you something. So I can now, um, shear, shears, pruners, they're pruners, I don't even know they are, but there's something. And so I like have been able to, what? Trim? Trim? I am trimming, yes. So I've been able to like control my bushes to a little bit. But they're at a point where I might have to call that guy again to come back because it's fall and I don't know what's next. But Jen Wilkins, she clearly, she cared deeply for these roses. And she just talked about how they had rose rosette disease. I don't know if anyone has heard of that. It was in Texas. And she said that this would attack the roses and they were mites. And it is attacked it, it would spread. And you could not treat them. There was no way to take care of them except to get rid of the plant. And you had to dispose of it properly. You have to, like, make sure it doesn't touch anything else. You have to bag it all up. You can't leave it. But at the end, honestly, the best option was to burn. You had to burn it so that it wouldn't infect everything else. That was the only way to prevent the spread of this rose rosette. Now, how disappointing to think, but you don't want to lose the rest of the crop because of this one, to spare this one crop plant. So let's sit here for one second. In our world, we're trying to provide for ourselves understanding and joy. This is a tough passage. It's not about encouragement and joy, but it's critical to have a more solid understanding of the character of God, his deep passion and pursuit of us. It doesn't look good on Instagram, but my prayer is that it will burden you to offer not just life in what looks like faith, but to pursue and encourage us to see that Jesus is better than the church. He's better than the church experience. Experiencing church, being with friends that are Christians, growing up in a home where your parents had faith, that doesn't make us saved. That's not our choice to follow Jesus. That's not making him better. That's making this life better. He is better than the appearance of salvation because he is salvation himself. Jesus bore our sins on the cross. He was buried and rose again in three days. And he sits at the right hand of God. And he is our hope. I love the next part. Because he says the word, or she, maybe, the writer, says the word beloved. That is the most affectionate term we're going to hear in Hebrews. You just heard something so hard, so difficult, that this writer felt like he could say, that he could say this and that they would still have ears to hear what he had to say next. The writer knew his hiding was hard, but his love compelled him to speak the truth. We are so prone in our thick-skinned world 
to take offense at things that are even intended for us. Someone says something and we take personal offense and they weren't even talking to us. We overheard it or what they were saying was actually just them communicating something of fact and yet we're so offended. We take offense to these things and we fail to see the love that someone is showing us and speaking out to us and saying something to us that we need to hear. It, this, when the writer said this, it produced a response not of defensiveness but rather a gratefulness that he cared so deeply about them to tell them about his concern about those who, might, who we might assume are Christians and yet we need to give them the gospel still. Pastor Michael recently preached and said that we need to care more about the person than the relation than preserving our relationship. That's what he did. He cared more about the people and then them hearing the truth than caring about that they would like him because the love was so much deeper than the like. We feel sure of certain th- we feel sure of better things, not things I just spoke of, but of even better things of salvation. We have evidence of salvation that's being driven by your love for his name, not for his glory, but for his. So in Hebrews 6, let me go to the next. So verse 9, I'll read it. So though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation, things that are gonna, we're going to know that you are saved. For God is not unjust so as to overlook your work and the love that you have shown for his name in serving the saints as you still do and we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness to have this full assurance of hope until the end so that you may not be sluggish or but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherited the promise so they're talking about that they are sure of something they're sure they have salvation so kind of like they went through this whole thing there's all these people blah 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 He's like, but that's not you. I don't know um, if you've ever talked to your kids. Like, did you see what they did? They did this over here. Like, don't do that. Don't do that. Because I know you're a better person than that. And you're using this example of someone else's life to say, like, that's not what it looks like to be, you know, maybe you say your family's name. That's not what it looks like to be a Lewis. That's not what it looks like. Or that's not what it looks like to be a follower of Jesus. In our family, we use a lot of this. That's not what it looks like to be kind. Like, I don't know what kindness is, but that's not it right now. <laughs> I can tell you that's not it. And so we see evidence of their salvation being driven by their love for his name. That is what's drawing them. It's not drawing them because they want glory for themselves. It's because love for his name. That's what's going to compel them and compels them to works. John 13, 35 says, By this, all people will know you're my disciples if you have love for one another. And that's what they were showing. So therefore, we know they follow Jesus. We see the evidence of it. And then we even see affirmation in other parts of Scripture where it says, like, people who love Jesus, they love other people who love Jesus. Like, that's how it works. We don't work for our salvation, but our salvation should propel us to work because that produces fruit. So he talked about we desire, let me read it again, the same earnestness. It could also be translated to be diligence, so that continual work. So we desire for you to continually to show diligence to the full assurance of hope until the end. So I want to talk about hope because there it is, and I love hope. Hope, I think, is amazing. And we can talk about hope and biblical hope, and they're two different things. And um, John Piper just said there's like three ways we use hope. We say it's a desire for something good in the future, like, oh, I hope, like, 
that's a good hope to have. Or things in the future that we desire. Um, or a basis or reason for thinking that our desire may indeed be fulfilled. So those are kind of like worldly hopes. An example I have in my life is that my daughter, one of my daughters, recently celebrated her golden birthday. Well, actually, two of my daughters did, but this one. And she turned five on the 5th this summer. And you would have, her birthday's in the middle of the summer. And she drove in carpool, I think once a week, maybe more than that, from preschool. And every time they would drop her off, they would still be talking about her golden birthday. And all her hopes and dreams, her golden birthday was going to be amazing. And she invited everybody. She knew she had all these hopes and wishes. And I would describe them more as wishes. So when it came down to her golden birthday, we asked her, what do you want to do? We can have a party. We'll invite your friends. Or we can go to the American Girl Doll Cafe with just your family. And all of a sudden, all those hopes and dreams were just outside. Like, she didn't care. She just wanted to go to the American Girl Doll. And I think that's often, like, it's so flippant when we use the word hope. It's not something we're confident in. She had no confidence in these things. She was just wishing, like dreaming. And when we use the word hope and we see it in scripture, sometimes we might put that definition to the word hope. And that's not it. The biblical definition, thinking about it, it's a confident expectation and desire for something good in the future. A confident expectation and desire for something in the future. The writer's confidence is not only in what they did in the past, saying, hey, you did this, but it's also what they're going to do. He sees the perseverance. He sees they're still doing it, and you're still going to do it. And that's going to propel you to the hope, the thing in the future. I would suggest that faith, hope, and trust are all almost the same thing in the sense of what we're talking about here. But faith is this all-encompassing thing. Like, do you have faith in God? But within that, I think trust is your decision today. Like, do you trust God? Like, someone asks you. They're usually talking about, like, do you trust God? Like, they're asking you right now, make a decision. Do you trust God? But then hope is something always to the future. Our faith in the future is our hope. And we put that, I have faith in God. I have faith in the future. Something else is going to happen. If we go back to verse 12 in this passage, it says so that you may not be sluggish. Another word is lazy. So they're, kind of, they're doing the right things. They're persevering. They're going where they need to go. And he says, you need to see the full assurance of hope until the end to completion so you may not be lazy. And the way you won't be lazy is to imitate those who have inherited the promise. Those people inherited the promise through faith and patience. And it kind of leads directly, kind of like, I was like, oh, this is all separate. And I was like, actually, no, it's not. So it's saying being imitators of those who did that. And you know who did that? Abraham. And it's going to tell us about Abraham who did it in the next passage. And then it talks about promise, too. <laughs> so in the next passage, we have Hebrews 6, 13. For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no greater one to swear, he swore by himself, saying, surely I will bless you and multiply you. And thus, Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. If you make an example, we want to follow an example of someone who has inherited the promise. In this case, we're going to look at Abraham specifically. God made a promise to Abraham that he would bless and multiply him. 
his family. Abraham was 75 at the time and childless. Yet, it says he patiently waited, and then he obtained the pro that promise. And if we look into Scripture, into Genesis 22, there he is tested. And the promise he'd been given in his mind, he, like his promise, he has the son, Isaac. This is the promise. He's then tested, and God calls him to obey and patiently wait to see God show up and show and God show himself faithful, that the story becomes about God and God providing as opposed to Abraham and Abraham's faith. The, um, I'm going to read to you Genesis 22. The angel of the Lord said to, um, verse 15 to 18, if you're wondering. The angel of the Lord said to Abraham from heaven a second time and said, I swear by myself, declares the Lord, that because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you and make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and as the sand of the seashore. Your descendants will take possession of the cities of their enemies, and through your offspring, all nations on earth will be blessed because you've obeyed me. All nations. That's us. We're the Gentiles. That's us. So this promise is given to Abraham in Genesis. Only the Jewish people. Only the old, like the old covenant. And yet he's speaking of something more, something bigger, and it's only, that promise is going to be Jesus. The promise Abraham received impacted so many. It brought the Gentiles into the promise, and the promise itself is accomplished through Jesus. And now we no longer await the promise, but we get to live in it because the promise is salvation. But Abraham only saw the promise. And so when you see, like, this, I was just saying, like, if you have a seed, and, like, oh, if you plant that seed, you're going to have a flower. And you're like, oh, I'll just hold on to the seed. Like, that's just the promise of the flower. But if you plant the seed and have the flower, that's what you want to turn your eyes to. You don't focus on the seed. I, when I was reading this, I couldn't help but notice that when it says the words, you have not withheld your son, your only son. When you think of someone who didn't withhold their son, their only son, the fulfillment of this promise happens because God does not withhold his son, his only son. But he sends Jesus. And there the Lord is still a God, the provider. And he provides for all of us. It's a different provision because Isaac was spared. Isaac's life was not taken. But Jesus' was. But that's just how God is. He's, that's his character. He's going to provide for all his children. And he's going to make a way for us to have salvation. So we don't want to focus on the promise because we know that Jesus is better than just talking about the promise because he is the salvation. God makes an oath and a promise, and because of his character, we can cling to the hope. He shows us that his love for the heirs of the promise, us, by his effort to show us more convincingly. So we, like it says in the, I just was like, oh, that's like such a, a dad thing to do, to convince you more um, more like convincingly. So verse 17 says, so when God desired to show more convincingly to us, here's the promise about his character. He then did this oath and did like two things with it. This summer, um, we went to a camp and after one day while we were at camp, we went um, hiking-ish and we end up on these cliffs and we brought life jackets and with swimsuits and there's little kids and um, it's decided that we're going to let the kids jump off the cliff if they want to, 
with life jackets on. And we have all that we need to make this, like it's a safe thing, safe. And it was very cold, but it was safe. And it made me think of, the, when we were talking about this, I was like thinking about the fact that like, we went to great lengths to convince our children that they were gonna be safe and they're gonna be caught and that this, like, and that this was okay. Great lengths, and some of them still didn't trust it. Like at the end, some like it was their own fear that would just would not propel them off the cliff. Like they could not go. But if we had not gone to these great lengths, the reality would have all stayed the same. Like everything would have still stayed the same. We still had life jackets. Everyone, no one was gaining any swimming ability by convincing them. All these things, and yet, I don't think they would have had the confidence to jump, because we had not, as a parent convince them, taking that time to say, like, actually, this is for your good. And I think that God does that. God didn't have to convince us. He didn't have to go that extra thing. But he saw our inability at times to choose to follow him, to choose to trust him. He's like, no, I'm going to convincingly tell you this, that you actually, without a doubt, will know, like, it's not that God didn't provide. It's that you, like, chose not to follow it. Does that make sense? So... um is a loving father that affirms and loves his children to make sure that they know that he is better, that what he's doing is better. In the NIV in verse 18, it talks about, you have fled to take hold of a hope set before us. I mean, so we're saying like, because I was trying to understand like, what is it like, are we going to the hope? We're like, I don't understand there's a different translation. And I was like, oh, this actually makes sense. So you're fleeing to the hope. That's where you're being, gone, you're going to. And as you take hold of the hope, the hope becomes your anchor. So this is an image of a sailor in a boat. And as the anchor will hold that boat steady and tethered. You can't see, but you know it's there in the rock bed. And at times when a storm is coming, you might send a sailor ahead with your anchor. And that sailor is going to go and he's going to put the anchor in a safer place where it cannot, because maybe the rock bed under you is only sand. And he's going to go and take it to where it will be tethered and it will be safe, because that is what his goal is. And Jesus is our forerunner. He is going ahead. That is who's taking our anchor to the Holy of Holies. He can go in there. We can't. Can now, because the veil's gone. But he's going there, and he's tethering our anchor there, our hope. And as he goes before us, he is the high priest, and that's where we have our salvation. The last thing I want to talk about is the anchor is not only in the Holy of Holies and has this like chain hanging down, if you have a visual, but Jesus is anchoring it to our souls. We don't have to lose a chain. We're not chasing it around like, oh, where'd that anchor go? Like, let me go find it. But he's tethered it to us. But we are still called to hold fast. So how do we like reconcile that? Like it's, this chain is tethered to us, but we're supposed to hold fast. And I think there is an action we need to do. When you have this, anchor holding down and we're you have the option to hold on and I think you hold on because that's what what your focus is on it says verse 19 we have this as assurance steadfast anchor of our souls a hope that enters into the place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf having become the high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek John Piper asked these three questions, which I thought, like, that's it. And he answers them for us, which I love when you get answers and questions. If Jesus is the author of our salvation and he is best, then why are we told to hold on to this, hold fast? It says, hold fast to your hope. So if we're holding fast 
If our holding fast was obtained by the blood of Jesus, then why is God telling us to hold fast? If Jesus did it, then why are we holding fast? And these are the three questions I think that answer, or three statements that answer it. What, Jesus, what Christ bought for us when he died was not freedom from having to hold fast, but he died to give us the power to hold fast. What he bought was that the nullification of our wills as though we don't have to hold fast. Like, I'm a Christian. I don't have to hold fast. But he gives us the empowers our wills that we want to hold fast. That is where I want to be. What he bought was not the cancellation of the commandment to hold fast, but the fulfillment of the commandment to hold fast. And what he bought was not the end of an exhortation, this is the end, but rather the triumph. Like, this is how you know. This is the victory. Jesus is better, but it's not an empty, one-sided relationship. We've spoken about the fruit of our salvation, the hope of which we can have when we have an active faith in the future. The assurance of a better promise, better than the one Abraham received, and ours is a promise of salvation, guaranteed by the oath of God, and it is a hope anchored by the finishing work of Christ on our behalf. There is much heartache and trials in the lives represented in this room, and there's tragedy in the world. And it can be hard to focus on Jesus in the midst of these trials. We live in a fallen, broken world, and it's not getting less broken or less fallen. And though we expect it, we expect it to get better. But Jesus is better. He's the fulfillment of the promise, and we can see why they are reminding the people that what they have now is better when the, than when they were waiting for the promise. In the midst of persecution that they were facing, it was time for them to hold fast to their hope, to put their hope in the future. Because Jesus had already come, they couldn't really cling to that promise anymore because it had been fulfilled. They now needed to put all their expectations and hope in Jesus. It says, Jesus, it says, Jesus is better. We are clinging to something, and in order to hang on to that hope, we can't hold on to both. The things we're clinging in our other hand or in both hands. And by holding on to the hope of Christ, you'll have abundant life. It's not necessarily a glamorous life. It's not exactly an easy life but it'll be worth it. Jesus says, I've come that you might have life and have it abundantly. One of the things I was, as I was like processing the Jewish faith and where they're coming from, and just like everything we've heard about how they had to live was about how they could take care of their sins, but none of it was about how they could have life because that's, that's all they could have. All they could have is like, how can we make ourselves clean for a day or for a year? But they didn't have this opportunity to have abundant life. And that's what we we have. That is the promise he's giving us today. It's time for us to hold fast our hope. That's what we've been called to. Next week, we're going to talk about how Jesus is the better hope and the better covenant. But today, I want us to rest. We're here today to confirm and think about what does Jesus want us to hold on to? What are we holding on to in place of him? What are the things that we're unwilling to let go of? And how are we prayerful and 
aware of our conversations with others to encourage them to salvation, to encourage them to understanding who Jesus is, as opposed to affirming them in their faith, but affirming them in their pursuit of him. 